Welcome to this week's episode of Hey, I think we're good here. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jackson Metakekia. And I'm Matt West. And we're here getting to know the sport of volleyball through the life experiences our guests have to share with us. Come take a listen. Today's episode stars the greatest Australian volleyball player in the history of Australian volleyball, Paul Carroll. PC is currently serving as the associate head coach for the Pepperdine men's program, his alma mater. This podcast covers his illustrious career as a wave and as a professional athlete. Paul was a three-time All-American, ABCA Player of the Year, and a walking bucket. Paul discusses his unique upbringing as an Australian volleyball player, his start as a setter, assimilating to American culture once arriving to Malibu, his bitterness about not winning a national championship, the legacy he has left behind during his time at Berlin, and his time now as a coach. Listen up. All I want and all I need, all I crave is a good puppy. Thanks. Um, how do you guys usually, usually start it? Uh, usually we just say, how did you get into volleyball is usually it. <laughs> how did you get into it with, in Australia? Because it's not a profoundly uh, big sport there. All right. So, yeah, my kind of recruiting process is different to basically everyone's, I assume. Wait, um, I have a question. Okay. I have one question before you start. <laughs> I heard... This could be total like PC legend though. And either Dave or Marv told me, I can't remember, but the word is that somebody called Marv and said, hey, there's this kid in Australia. He's two meters three or six eight. He's left-handed. He's a great spiker. The only way he can come to Pepperdine is on a full ride. And Marv, I heard, this is what I heard. Marv didn't even know who you were, nothing. And he was like, all right, I guess we got to take the gamble. I don't know. I, I think Marv said something like that to me because I had no idea like how it actually happened. And for me coming from Australia, like maybe I'll, I'll start a little earlier of how I actually started playing volleyball okay. and I'll go okay. into. And we, you'd probably have to ask Marv himself, but he kind of told me that. Because I assumed he, because I sent over DVDs of like playing in like AVL. It's like the, the semi-pro league in Australia. And it was a televised game. And I like played really well in that game. Sent over that DVD. And I thought like, all right, they probably watched, watched this game. And that's why like I'm getting scholarship offers. Uh-huh. So, but in, you know, in the end, who knows how it works is, you know, coaches talk. The Australian team came and played against the U.S. team. And the Australian coaches would have told Marv, like, kind of who's up and coming. So, but for me, though, I started, like, I got two older brothers who are three years older. And I'm from a small town in Australia. So, they started playing volleyball, and then I just copied them. And then I actually set, I'm three years younger, so I set for their, for the high school team in grade nine for, like, two years. I was the setter. And then I kept setting, because I didn't grow until I was, like, 16 and a half. I was six foot and I went to like the like Australian juniors camp for the junior national team and was cut from that because I was like basically almost too short. And as a setter, it's like six foot set is still fine, but I was like smaller than everyone else. And then a year later I grew like nine inches (laughs) and I was still setting. 
that I was like, as a lefty setter, I was just turning and turning and burning on every ball. Yeah. So on my high school team, the passes would like pass it off the net for me because they didn't want me to turn and hit it. <laughs> anyway, and then like the Australian team saw me again and then I was back and got offered a scholarship at the AIS, which is like the, um, like Australian Institute of Sports where the top like young kids go. And it was kind of BS. They only chose tall kids because they're like, we're going to choose tall kids. And they didn't care about the culture of training and stuff at all. So I arrived and there's just a bunch of like goofy seven foot kids trying to play volleyball. <laughs> and, and because I, I was like six foot nine, but had played and was a setter and had like all these skills. So I rolled in, I'm like, who the hell are all these like goofy tall kids? They all suck at volleyball. <laughs> and, and the coaches were like, yeah, we're like, like you can't teach height. We're just going to get these kids who don't have no passion for the game. And so, but everyone who was like in this training group with me, none of them play, played volleyball for another, like, after a few years, just because they, they didn't have any passion for the game. And then I made the, yeah, I made the junior team. Then I, first time I made the senior team, this is kind of like 2005. And when I start, I was deciding whether to play professional in Europe or go to college. And I had like, from a small town in Australia, I had no money to pay for college and I didn't know if I was actually gonna use an American college degree. So that was like, true, I'm like, I'm not going anywhere if I have to pay because I could go and play professional for sure. as like a 17, 18 year old kid. It would have been, I'm so happy, like best decision of my life to try to play, to, to go to college. And like, just I was deciding between like Hawaii and Pepperdine at the end. <laughs> but, the, but the difference was definitely the difference was Marv like Marv called me up and this is back before like like cell phones and stuff well cell phones were around but not internationally so he just called up from like landline in the coach's office at, with the with the Australian team and like his voice is you know how his voice is he's just super like recognizable distinct and you, it kind of like demands like attention so I I still remember that phone call and I think I was like, all right, like this put, put me over the edge. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to come. But this was only in May, May of my freshman, like three months before I arrived. And then like two weeks later, I broke my ankle. Sweet. So, and I was, it was kind of like a pretty devastating event because I broke my ankle just before my first senior team trip. And we were actually playing against the US in San Diego for some friendly games. Okay. And my parents were already in America to like, they planned a trip around it. So I had to call them up while they're in America and say like, Hey, I'm not actually coming. <laughs> so they, they still watched the Australia versus us games in San Diego. And Marv was there. Marv was there with the, with the us team and met my parents. And I was kind of nervous because the ankle break was like really bad. I was, like in a boot for seven months and I couldn't actually start playing volleyball until like second semester freshman year. And then, yeah. And so I didn't know what, how, why Mark cause you know, division one schools, they all, all their money's given up and cause men's volleyball don't have as many scholarships as women. Yeah. Like May, May of like the year that you're starting, all the scholarships are done. 
So I don't know how what happened, but somehow they made it work and like they were able to offer a scholarship. And then I rolled in with like this six foot, six foot nine, like Australian guy with a boot on. And my arrival story to Pepperdine was kind of crazy too. So I'll kind of keep, keep talking because- No man, keep going. Uh, it's we'll stuff. stop you when we feel like it, but keep rolling, dude. So I arrived on like a Sunday and I was meant to arrive on a Monday, but like I'm, the flights I guess were cheaper the day before. And dad booked me into like a hostel in Inglewood <laughs> and like night next to the airport for the Sunday night. So I couldn't check into the dorms until Monday, I guess. So I rolled in and I had this big boot on from, with my broken ankle and I know what it was going on. And this is like before any type of cell phone. So I'm like, I get into this primetime shuttle bus and the bus driver is like, yeah, you don't want to go to Inglewood. Like this is not a good neighborhood where this hostel is. <laughs> so I was like, all right, cool. So he took me to Pepperdine instead. And I just got dropped off on a Sunday afternoon at Pepperdine in like the row parking lot next to all the dorms and there was like there was nobody on campus yet and uh, i was just standing there and john jonathan winder's sister was like a ra i guess in one of the dorms so she saw me saw this tall white like australian kid just like standing with a with a big boot on his foot like in the parking lot like i stood there for like half an hour like having no idea what to do with my two big suitcases so she calls Somebody, I think she, maybe she calls Jonathan who calls Marv and then Marv drives in from his house and uh, yeah, like we try to work out something because I can't get in the dorms yet. So Marv works it all out. I go down to his office and uh, he calls up my dad just to say that I've arrived safely. And the first thing dad says is like, oh, I'm sure. Cause I'm like 18 year old and in Australia at 18, you can, you can drink a beer. Yeah. And in Australia, like I'll have like a beer at, like with my parents. One of the first things my dad says is like, oh, I'm sure he's looking forward to having a beer after this long trip. <laughs> and Marv is like, oh, Marv's like, oh, we don't do that here. So uh, I, that was, that was kind of, kind of funny. Perfect. It was like the first time I actually thought, oh, I didn't, I didn't really realize that. So I had, I had no idea about like the US or anything, but on my flight over, to be honest, I was like, I didn't know what like each coast, like LA was on the West coast. I was just like, all right, I'm going here. And then just, it was all, I like in hindsight, I'm like, holy crap. I should have done some research of like yeah, what's probably. going on. In hindsight, you know, hindsight's 2020. It probably yeah. helped you like going forward in your professional career though. Oh, for sure. And the, like, all right, this, we're going to another country. <laughs> yeah but this was like i don't know it was a pretty and then when i actually got into my dorm it was actually not i was you know how when you have like a certain moment of like what what the hell am i doing like yeah. i had that moment the morning after i arrived because i also i didn't realize i had to bring my own sheets to pepperdine man i, I was like i rolled either. in thank I god it, not tarantino's mom or else i wouldn't have had anything i was in the same boat so she did. Did she bring like multiple pairs, of, multiple sheets for you guys? Or yeah, she brought like I think Tino had an extra pair, and I was like, I don't have anything. Is it cool if I use that extra until I go to Target? You know, 
and we just yeah. like, got a deal. I had no idea. I, I thought it was like kind of hotel style where it's like, at least they'll give me like a, you know, a towel or something. Nothing. Yeah. So I, my, I like got to my room and like no one was there yet. And I had to wake up like 7am the next morning. I was all jet lagged and I had no sheets. So I put down like some of my clothes to like sleep on. And then I had no pillow. Next morning I wake up and I'm like, all right, like I slept terribly because I didn't have like an alarm to wake me up. I had no cell phone. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I wake up and get, get in the shower and the shower was ice cold. Like hot water was not working. Perfect. And it was like that, that exact moment. I'm like, what am I doing here? This is like <laughs> the worst thing ever. <laughs> and no towel after the shower. And then that was kind of like the beginning. And then it got like better and better from there. So I mean, couldn't really go, go, go down from there. Standard. Mm -hmm. What was your first day like? I remember my first day. Did you have Matt Young? No, he Matt Young started 2010. Oh, May, uh, okay. So we that? had Jay Jay Zemliak, okay. and we worked out in the cage. Oh. Okay. So old school. That is old school. How was your first day? Do you remember? First day lifting or just work at like training? Yeah, first day training. Well. My, I'll, I'll talk about my first impression of the guys in the team first. Okay. So, <laughs> so we, first guy I talked to was this uh, setter from Fresno, Brett Hughes. And he's yeah. from, like quite, quite a religious dude. And his, he just started talking about like his religion and trying to like girls and his idea about getting married. And he's, he's like, okay, I want to save my first kiss until marriage. And you were and like, like uh, that doesn't work here. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, well, I'm like, I, I've never heard of anyone. Like, obviously, saving yourself to marriage, fantastic. But like, first kiss, like, that's, <laughs> that's, that's serious. So, and then he, he and then, like, another guy from Fresno, Todd Dildine, they were just talking about their volleyball game. And they're like, and coming from Australia, where I don't know if we're more humble or, like, like a little more reserved. But we don't, and we all definitely don't sell ourselves as well, like talking ourselves up. So these guys were just like, I'm awesome at spiking. I'm, a, I'm the best setter here. I do this great. And I'm like, oh, damn, you guys must be pretty good. And they asked me, like, oh, what do you, like, I'm like, I'm like, I, I can't pass, like, reception is like, I was playing outside or opposite back then. So my reception is probably my worst part of the game. Like, I can attack, I got a good arm, this and that. And they were like, oh, I'm awesome at this, great at that. And then the first training, we have like an open gym and I watch these guys play. I'm like, Ooh, like, I'm like, Oh, cool. Like these guys must be like all stars. <laughs> and, and the first training, like, Oh, these guys like, they kind of suck. <laughs> so that was kind of, I had to like realign. I had to realign my expectation of like how you talk about yourself and how good you actually are in the court. Yeah. So, and like, they don't suck. Like they were physical kids, but they didn't have the touch, the ball control. They had a, like a lot to learn. And I, I come from a different background where I was already training with the Australian national team. And, and in 2004, I was one spot off. Like I was the 13th guy for the Australian Olympic team. So I was training with these guys who qualified for the Olympics and had played professional volleyball for 10 years. Yeah. And to them, I was like, like 
just trying to emulate what they did and they had this huge advantage to train with these these like really like some of the top Australian play like plays Australia's ever had. So it's a little bit different to like the like a club volleyball or high school volleyball in Fresno. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> you were correct. <laughs> that's so California, man. Actually that's pretty American. We're just like, yeah, well the guys that aren't that good, they're just like, yeah, you know, like pretty sick. You watch me play for like Balboa too, like I'm pretty good. The best player on my team. Yeah, but in the end though, like it's kind of it's better to be like that, like to be able to sell yourself, like and moving forward in life too, to kind of be like, yeah, I'm the man, and to have this sometimes irrational confidence. Yes. But that confidence, if you're confident, if you believe you can do it, and if you also have that same belief in your teammates, it's I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it helps you like play a little bit better. Like I always talk about the 2008, like U S team, these, oh. these guys were awesome, but like, let's compare them to like a Russian team. I think they beat Russia in the semis, Yeah. but, yeah. and then beat Brazil in the final, but yeah. the Russian team, they are just these physical specimens. Obviously yeah. the U S like, obviously like what's his name? Um, Clay. Yeah. Clay Stanley is a, like an absolute beast. But you got Riley Salmon on the outside. You got Reed Pretty. Yeah, you know, Ryan like, and, and Lee. Yeah, and then Malar. That's yeah. right. So, so for these guys, like maybe the Russian team are just they maybe even more physical. But the US, they just believe that they are the absolute best, no matter what. They believe each other are the best. They like lifting each other up. And this extra few, like this, adds a few percent on like your game. And it's maybe worth like a few points every single set, just because like if you have this confidence, you know, like an irrational, like it's not rational when you can back it up with the skill, but you just have no doubt in your mind. Like I have this skill, my teammates have this skill. We believe in each other. It it helps you out, and I think like other countries can definitely like just can learn from it. It's annoying if someone doesn't have the skill, but at the highest level, like all these guys are really like damn good. Yeah. Mike Ma and I were just talking about that in terms of setting because it was like at a certain point in time everybody can set the same ball it's the energy that you give behind that ball that entails like how good it actually is so you have a guy for example you play with Zukowski right mm -hmm. yeah he sets a nice ball and it's solid it's the same ball every time now on paper he is probably far more accurate than Bruno. Right? Like night like I, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you. But yeah, so like you watch, if you watch Bruno's set, like there's a lot of balls that are just flinging all over the place. Because he's just going for it. But whatever mm -hmm. he does, he is a hundred percent in it. He believes in every ball that he delivers. And in turn, his attackers believe in every single ball that that guy is going to deliver, mm -hmm. right? And you see a lot of guys, and I mean, I just noticed setters more, but you see other setters that, like, they have – they're probably better at the act of setting, but they just don't have that kind of confidence that that guy can portray to his whole team. And that's the whole reason that guy can win so many games is because he has so much confidence that just radiates on other people, like you're saying, and he can mm -hmm. just bring them along. And you have a guy like Loy that's leading the charge who's like 
I mean, he walks around like his dick's been in the room three minutes before he even walks in. <laughs> and he's like, all right, you guys are going to get on my back and we're going. But I guess yeah. you know, they work pretty hard. I, yeah, for sure. And that, like, you know, as an attacker, if you approach, I still think you, you, you have to have that skill. Like, I don't know. For I sure. mean, yeah, yeah. Like, like that like skill's got to be there. The technique's got to be there. But then once you have all that, it's like, you know, like a server to go back there. You know, you got some bad coaches. And we, we had a, my coach in Russia, so in Krasnoyarsk, yeah. my last year playing pro. He, he Lubomir Travitsa, so he's uh, um, Dragon oh, Travitsa. Dragon's dad? dad. Yeah. yeah. So he was like an interesting dude because he's like Serbian, but is, lives in Italy for now for a long time. And we're in Russia. And he would, like, as a coach, would literally be there. Like, our receivers would make a few um, reception errors. And just before the server would start, would, would, like, toss, he's yelling to the receivers, like, you've made three errors, three reception errors. Like, <laughs> and I'm just saying that as the opposite. Like, how do you think this is helping? Like, yeah. you, were literally, you were literally trying to, like, tearing these guys down as they need to receive the next ball. And you could argue that, like, you know, in training, if you have the coach with this type of mentality, it just, like, makes you mentally strong to be just not – so, like, you can kind of block – to be able to block this out and still play high-level volleyball, imagine how good you could play if you have a coach who's kind of, like, building your confidence and, like, creating creating this, like, culture of, like, lifting each other up rather than, like, pushing each other down. For sure. Going back to Pepperdine, um, what was, like, after your first year, what was your take on American volleyball? I, the coaching at Pepperdine was, like, incredible. Like, way higher level than, like, ever in Australia that I had from the coaches. I had, the coach I had in Australia was, initially, it was a Argentinian guy who was just super passionate about the game. But in the way Marv did things, and just how like simple not simple but like i don't know he he has this way of knowing what players already know so if he has a player who has like a reasonably high volleyball iq he's not telling them like basic stuff so marv's a guy that when you when he talks like you listen because he's not mincing words and uh, the the one of the, what, maybe one of the main things I noticed with NCAA volleyball was just how obsessed Americans are with statistics. And just yeah. like every get, like every set, you have those stats in front of you. And then after the game, like players and everyone's checking stats immediately and you got the kills on the big board. So, and I got like, as an opposite who got set the ball, like my freshman year wasn't, was easily my worst year of my four because my, I just was coming back from this seven, seven month ankle surgery. So I couldn't physically jump like normally timing was still a little off, but I was like, at the beginning, I was like, wow, like I can see like the stats are right there every time after the game, everyone's talking about it. So, and there's a fine line between like, I thinking about like my personal stats and winning the game for the team and doing what's best. So, but I, yeah, I noticed that and I kind of, Bought in a little bit as like, and you know, just trying to be consistent, trying to hit always, like as an opposite, hit always around 400. If I'm hitting less than 300, then there's a problem. And trying to be consistent that way. And 
be concerned with just, I don't know, doing a part and knowing like this is the kind of offense we're running. And uh, the guys too would be sometimes even now like a little too concerned with their own stats because that's what gets them like, like these individual awards. And as I think as a coach now, like it's, it's kind of important to have everyone know their roles and understand the culture you're building within the team because you can't have a guy just be like, hey, send me the ball. We had that issue a little bit with the Australian team with uh, the big opposite we have, Edgar. Yeah. Where he's played in, he's played in, um, in Asia for many years and he's just the guy. And the way they play with that team is you kind of just jack him high balls. And it doesn't work if you're playing, like if you're trying to like, beat the best teams in the world. And that's the same with like college volleyball. If you, if you have a monster, like that's great. Like you talked about Josh Taylor and Mizzou. I was talking with David about this the other day. Like it was just like they have some big position four players and the game seemed to be just like jack high balls out to position four. For sure. And this helps you win. But then if you put the next, the next level up and if you're trying to, it's great if you have someone that can like kill those balls. But as soon as you have, have a block and a defensive system that could defend or if you're not that play is not feeling physically like as good that day then it's going to be difficult difficult to win i have a question for you piggybacking off of that so then going into that national championship match because you okay so basically you bait a one-headed monster in long beach with paul ottman because they were kind of a one-trick pony at that point like dean was pretty good they had decent middles, but Paul was their team. And they mm-hmm. had a young setter at that moment. And then you go into the national championship and you play Penn State with Matt. And you guys mm-hmm. did a phenomenal job in the first set of just shutting down, was it Schweitzer, the lefty guy? Yeah, so they had Matt and then Max Holt in the and middle. Then Max Holt and Max Lipsitz for the middles. And then mm-hmm. that – I think their second outside just had like a pretty nice night too. And then looking back at that, were you, did you ever think like, man, I wish, or not, I wish they hadn't set me more or set me less or whatever, but like maybe we could have moved the ball around more. Maybe we should have tried something different during the regular season to open up the game for us or I don't know, yeah. just like reflecting, was- looking back in time. Yeah, so that was 2008 national championship. Yeah, 2007 we had a really well-rounded team. Okay, we had middles. Our middles were guys we could set a little more, and we had JD and uh, and um, like John Grove. Like our team was a little more. We were like the best team in the country all year, and then we just didn't perform in the semis of um, the final four. But then 2008, that like the Penn State to the middle were just absolutely dominant. They they had 30 kills through the middle in that match, four set match. And uh, I think Holt had like, Holt hit like 17 from 30 or something, maybe 17 from 25. And then Lipsich had like 13 from 17. And we, the big issue for us is that we were like committing on those middles and, and paying them a lot of attention and they were still slaughtering us. And our middles, we were two from four from the match and they literally were ignoring the middles, which made it real tough on our pins. For sure. Because we had, so we had like, because we, we still set some, like JD was playing real well. Yeah. 
JD Schleppenbach on the outside. So we were, I wouldn't call us definitely not a one trick pony. We were just all on the pins. Yeah. So, and you know, right now to play high level volleyball, you want to set like on good, good on positive reception, you want to set about 50% through the middle of the court. First tempo pipe, first tempo big. And we were just all pins. So those, their good middle blockers could just load up and be ready to move in either direction. And it's just, it was, and as the game wore on, we won the first set. Then the second set, we were, we had set point at 29, 28. And then we ended up losing a tight second set. And then we just ran out of steam on the pins. They started touching us, controlling us a little bit. So in hindsight, like trying to work out a way to get our middles going. Um, and then, it, and it was tough too. We set the middle with no block and then Mark Hulse would hit it out. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, like it's, that's pretty, I don't know. Demoralizing. You know, you, it's yeah. Kind of deflating, demoralizing. Cause you're, you, I don't know. You like, you talk about plays that kind of lift up a team and you know, each point is worth a point, but some points kind of like, yeah. Uh, a little different you know if you make an if a libero makes an incredible dig you turn and transition a big ball like maybe running big or just just it kind of feels like it lifts everyone up for the, and it kind of like is deflating for the for the opponents for sure. so when you haven't set middle into like i i don't know why i did this it was like torture to myself but i rewatched that game over over quarantine and uh, i think Karch was um commentating and in the third set, we like we were basically running no middle. We set Hulse through the middle. He hits it out, and Karch is like, "Yep, that's why Pepper and I haven't been setting any middle." <laughs> and it was yeah, like watching it back, it's just like yeah, we. It was just the point. Like we, that, those are the pieces we had that year. We did what we we could, and then I don't know. Thinking back on it, we still we should have won that second set, and. Uh, it was like that Penn State team had two of the best U.S. players ever on it. For sure. Like with Matt and Max who are still playing right now. Yeah. Which is, yeah, like I don't think we just ran into one of the best teams ever. We were, in my opinion, like it was, a, like, it was just like yeah. a battle. I think both Matt and I had 35 kills each. Yeah. Well, and college volleyball. Yeah, and I like that. Like, went on to have a like a ten-year professional career, and was able to win like six championships with Berlin, and like win like make some final fours of Champions League, win the CEB Cup, win the German Cup, and do all this. So I kind of like I'm not, like I forget. I still like that's one of the big things that I'm disappointed in that I couldn't win a national championship with Pe with Pepperdine, and we should have. We were ranked number one all four years when I was there, like at some point during the season, sophomore year was all season number one. And uh, we had like an amazing team. We had win the setting. We had like JD, one of the best passes in the, like in the college game in the last 20 years. And uh, then going on to like professional and having a very successful professional career, I kind of like, all right, cool. That's disappointing. But I had all this success. But when I talked to some of the guys on the team who didn't play professional volleyball, like, if I bring up, like, that national championship match, they get real heated. Like, Sean Grubbs, <laughs> he, like, gets fired up. He just – he remembers the exact plays. Like, this play here, 
like I got this dig and we didn't do this. I'm like, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know how you remember that. Yeah. And cause that's like this college is four years of your life and you remember it forever. It's like such like talking to recruits. It's like, it's such an like, important part of your life. You're like, you're studying, you're meeting friends that you'll be like friends with for the rest of your life. You yeah. you'll remember all these games you play. And uh, afterwards, most people like move on to successful like careers in whatever field they study in, whatever field they choose. And uh, the memories that you make like on the court kind of like definitely stay with you forever. Oh yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I'm still bitter. Matt, do you, <laughs> yeah. Do you have, do you have a, a moment that you're kind of bitter about in your Pepperdine career? No. Tell him, Matt. Tell him. We got robbed. We got fucking robbed. That's what we did. We got robbed. No, we got – here's what – the only reason I think we got robbed, so our junior year, we tied for first place in the regular season with BYU. And then we ended up losing in the semis. But the two teams that went into the final was Stanford, BYU, and then we were in, like, the third spot. And the top three in the conference were Stanford, BYU, and us, right? So then it was the year that they had expanded into the final six. It's mm-hmm. so like, oh, great. Like, for sure we're going to get in that large bid. At that moment in time, we were, like, number three in the country, I think, between, like, Stanford, BYU, and then us. And, um, yeah, so we're just watching the monitor. And at that point, I think, that it, like, they came up with the odds and – that's when off the block started getting really big and Vinny Lopes was like, yeah, RPI and whatever bullshit you guys use now that like dictates whether you can get into a tournament and like non-conference matches. And so at that time, non-conference was like non, like you guys, you guys probably played no non-conference when you played aside from going to Canada. Yeah, we played like some Cal Baptist early on, and yeah, that's like, NPSF was so big is that we had yeah. like there was eleven teams in NPSF or twelve yeah, so teams. Like, we had twenty two NPSF matches. Right. So like, what was they the were point? always the best teams. Yeah, and you're mm-hmm. like, we're in the best conference in the country, so like, why would we leave and go play more matches? So we're we're watching the screen, and it's like first seed, second seed, third seed, fourth seed, and we're like, all right, we're getting the fifth seed. And then it's like Penn State Nittany Lions. And we're like, all right, maybe we'll get the sixth seed. And then it's like limestone, whatever. And we're like, holy shit, we're not going. And so yeah. Marv makes his speech and he's like, hey, you know, I know there's nothing I could say or do that's going to make you feel any better about this situation. But I'd like to invite all of you guys to go to Coogie's for breakfast. And I was like, what the hell? Like, I did not expect this. So we're walking down the stairs, right? You know, Marvel always parks on the hill. Mm-hmm. So I'm walking down and I look at Marv's truck and he has his bags all packed in the back of his truck, ready to go to Chicago. So Marv was like, for sure we're going. So then when, and then once I saw that, I was like, we were robbed. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not even... Yeah, I'm more mad or bitter about the fact that I never got the chance versus, like, if I'm you, I'm like, at least I can live with the fact that I got to a national championship and I lost it, but at least I was there to lose mm-hmm. it. 
in this mm-hmm. regard, I was like, we never even got the chance to show, you know, like if it was possible or not. Yeah. My uh, senior year wasn't robbed that, that badly, I'd say, but it was like a neck and neck. With, yeah. So we, we, so Irvine with it, like, we finished the same amount of winners and losses as Irvine, but they had, I think they won them like head to head, like battle or something. Yep. So we beat Long Beach, I think, in the semis in 2009. And then um, UC, USC weren't good all year. And they had Murphy Troy and Ciarelli, who were like, <laughs> like I think, freshman or sophomore. And yeah. they, but they got real good late. They like peaked real well late in the season. So they smashed UCI 3 0, like pounded them. Yeah. And then, then we met them in the NPSF final and we lost in five, like 18 16. And like real close game. And I'm thinking like, all right, cool. We still have the same amount of winners and losses as, as Irvine. And I assume they should look at, at like current what happened on this weekend. I agree. They don't, they, don't, they don't take into account like how you lost. Nope. It was Not just like a loss is a loss, a win's a win. Like we lost in a heartbreaking five-set battle and they lost the day before, like, like the semis, it, they got pounded 3-0. And Marv knew how it works, and Marv was just straight up like, "Nope, we're not like we're not making it." And I'm like, like thinking lo- like, like logically thinking, I think we should be able to make it because like we're playing better than we're a better team than them right now. Yeah. But because they they were they beat us on the head to head battle, and that I guess that was the difference, and they got to go the final four. Now was back when it was only four teams, so only one at large. So it was pretty like devastating way to finish because we were like what like the second number two team in the nation yeah. but because the number one team in the nation didn't win our mpsf like usc like did from like the seventh seed or something for sure they like the what like irvine still got that and it was weird that being the number two team in the nation it was weird not going to a final four yeah. that, that happened to us our senior year too we had hawaii we lost we lost both at Hawaii, just tough to win in Stan. We lose both in Hawaii, and we played on a neutral site at Irvine. We spanked them at Irvine, and then we ended up losing to Irvine in, like, another heartbreaker. And I was like, doesn't it matter that we just spanked Hawaii in a neutral site at all? Like, we are the better team right now. Like, don't we deserve to go in? And they don't care. They don't care yeah. at all. And Marv says it all the time. He's like, if the best teams are supposed to go, then we would have been there. But they're not. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you want to peak at that time of the season to win a national championship. That's it. That's like the only thing that matters is those yeah. – it takes five matches to win an Addy. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now the six – like it's great that it's six teams Yeah. in it, but – it, but it's also why college sports is so awesome is because it's just, it's you like win or go home type of thing. Yeah. You know, compared yeah. to like NBA or like, be, like best of seven series. You're like, all right, cool. Next chance. And sure. then like the, the best team does what for sure win at like when you're playing the best of five, best of seven series. Yeah. But that's why it's so exciting to watch like college sports. Cause it's like, all right, like this is it. Like college you know, now there's the, the college playoff, but college football, it's kind of crazy to think, like, if you lose, like, one game, you, like, now it's, like, you have a, more of a chance because it's a four-team like four playoff. 
But back back when before that, it was just like you lose one game in the season, then your season's done. It's heartbreaking to follow, like be on the team, but also like follow a college team and actually care about it a lot. For sure. Or like you just lose, or you can lose the right game. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you yes. lose the right game, it's okay. But if you lose the wrong game, like that's it. You drop from one to seven. Mm-hmm. It's like the Patriots having a perfect season and losing in the Super Bowl. That's right. To my guy, well, you to, the, <laughs> to the, the helmet, the helmet catch. That's right. Sure. Oh, man. And then, well, then the Patriots got got some back after that. Was it was the Patriots who beat the um, Falcons? Yeah. There was a. This is obviously off topic, but <laughs> I was in. Uh, we're playing Champions League in Luba, in Italy, and there was a German player that I played with back, like in in Munich, who was playing for Luba, Calibetta, and he. This is back when like cryptocurrencies were, were going crazy, and he was an early like cryptocurrency guy so he made a lot of money with on uh like cryptos and he was betting i think he bet like ten thousand euro on the falcons to win the super bowl (laughs) (laughs) and he and he was and his story was like all right he's like in in europe super bowls on it starts at like 2 a.m so it goes from like 2 to 6 a.m so he was sitting in his apartment in italy by himself watching the super bowl he has 10,000 euro on the game. And if the Falcons win, he wins 25 grand. <laughs> and he's, and the Falcons are up 28 to three. And he's like sitting there alone in his room and he had the option to cash out. Like he's looking at his computer. He's like, oh, I'm not going to cash out. Like, like, cause you know, they cash out and like give you whatever rate. And that point in time, it was like the Falcons at 99.7% chance of winning when it was 28, three. And they obviously mismanaged the time and like pages came back. He's just sitting there like watching it like slowly unfold, like alone in his dark apartment by himself. <laughs> and it's just like, all of a sudden it's just like the, the Patriots win. And he's like, holy shit. I just lost like $10,000. <laughs> so and we, and we played them like a few days later in Champions League. So I was chatting him about it. And he was like, man, it was like, it was dark times. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, yeah, I don't, yeah. I'm like, dude, who? Who the hell? Like, he's this German guy playing in Italy, and how do you decide to bet this amount of money? On the Super Bowl? <laughs> you don't know anything about. He for sure knows nothing about America. Well, no, no. He he, he watches the Super Bowl each year. That's it. He watches one game. <laughs> I don't know. I think, and I think. He, he played in our – we had a fantasy league, and he played it a little bit. So he's following a little – I think he, he bought, like, the NFL league pass. So he was, he was into American sports. But just in the end, I just don't understand how you decide. Like, maybe if you're watching with some friends or you bet a few hundred – like, uh, me and Paul Lottman actually bet on that same game. I bet on the, the Patriots, and he bet – and he actually gave me odds. He gave me crazy better odds than whatever. So, so what, I think it was, like – if the Patriots won, I would give him 200 euros. And he was so confident that the Falcons, no, should I forget? Maybe it was the year after, but he was so confident that he gave me way better than the Vegas odds. He's like, whatever. And in the end, and, and we were watching the game too. And this is like not as much money. So I'm, so when the Patriots won, I think he gave me, he was confident on the Falcons. He didn't believe in the Patriots. So he gave me like 500 euros or something. 
and I would have lost 300. And he was like bumping, but this was like a group of us and it wasn't like a 10, it wasn't a big, like a massive sum of money. So, yeah. but he's still bummed out because it's like, you're tired at like four, five, six in the morning watching the Super Bowl and you have to like, and I'm there cheering and like, like laughing at what's going on. But that, I, that I'm like, I'm cool because you're betting maybe amongst friends, obviously not anymore with being a college coach and all these NCAA rules. But betting amongst friends and whatever, but this guy is like on his online betting site, betting 10 grand by himself, not watching with anyone. It's like, is it, if, if, if you did win that money, would it, would it be enjoyable to you? <laughs> You're just celebrating by yourself. Yeah. So, anyway, I don't know how we got onto this. That, no, that was, that was good, though. Um, going back to your, uh, your development, um, you said you grew nine inches in about a year. Mm-hmm. So to me, yes. I, immediately, I immediately think of Anthony Davis when you say that. He had something similar. He was a point guard when he was a real young uh, player. But as you can see now that he's a grown man, he has certain skills that other big men don't have. Um, what – yeah, how is that good for your development? What do you think it gave you above other people that were your size? Uh, it was – huge for my development like I never was put in the middle blocker as like the tall kid and it made me you know when you're young I started playing when I was 13 and uh, when you're young like you need to reach if you're short you need to reach as high as you can to attack over the net to start so I was forced to like have a good technique you, you think about like constraints like learning where it's like all right work out a way to hit over like an elastic above the like above the net and uh, you, I wasn't coached how to do it, but it's just like, hey, for me to hit over this net, I need to reach as high as I can. So I developed this technique early. But then you, if, you, if you have kids who are big at 14, 15 years old, they don't need to have good technique to reach. And they can kill the ball anyway because at that age, the block's not good. So other kids who, got, who develop early have developed all these bad techniques of just like, oh, I'm going to bounce the ball. I can do whatever because I don't need to reach high. So I developed these good habits early because I was short. And then when I was setting, like I would play all the positions for my age group team. But then with my, on my brother's team, I'd be setting for them. So I'd be touching so many balls. And then when I got tall, I was fortunate not to, not to lose any of those skills. And as an opposite, well, that's one thing I kind of take a lot of pride in throughout my career as an opposite is to have the ability to handle balls, read the game well. And uh, like, so Kavika Shoji and I played for four years together in Berlin and have a relationship with the setter where like any easy ball, like if the, op- if the op- opposing team tips any ball or we get any decent touch, it's our job to read it and put it into a position for us to run four attackers back at them. And uh, this mindset, like Marv kind of got me on this mindset too, where it's like, Hey, I'm going to be a good defender and I'm going to read the game because this yeah. is going to allow us to win. And, you know, this makes volleyball easy. You talk about the, some of the, let's say the best liberals in the world. And if you're talking about defense, you got the, like the lay fan or whatever may think a certain liberal is good because they do a swan dive and they get like a crazy dig, but they won't notice the liberal who reads the game well and makes 
a hard play look easy and, and an impossible play look possible. So the hard play look easy, like no one notices a guy who reads a play perfectly, literally makes a ball look like a free ball because they've read what's going on and they play it high and perfect and you can run an offense back at him. But they will notice some like liberal who like just stands there, waits until they have to do a crazy swan dive and then you have to chuck a free ball over. I remember that in college because, you know, in college it's just like they don't stat the quality of the digs. And also in reception, you don't, they don't stat the quality of the, the reception. So it's real hard to tell who are the good liberos if you're just a fan of watching the game. And the flashy, I remember, who was it? I think Tony Kerr. I don't know, I think he's still coaching somewhere now. Yeah. Yeah. But he was a libero at UCLA and he was a real flashy guy. He was like good volleyball. And like Dustin Watton was like that originally too. Maybe Dustin's a little bit still like that. Yeah. Where he just... <laughs> And he gets some amazing digs, but sometimes you think like, ah, oh, he probably could have just like got there a little early and didn't have to do a crazy dive or whatever. Yeah. And then other guys like, so Eric Shoji reads, reads pretty well and is technically incredibly sound and he won't be as flashy, but he like, and Luke Perry also gets crazy digs, the Australian liberal. That guy's and, just good though. Yeah. And, but they are oh, good. Yeah, and they just put themselves in a position to dig balls and balls that no one else would dig. Like Grupanikov, you know, he's a guy who reads the game better than maybe anybody. He will be, he will stand in positions and you think, like, why was he there? Like, why is he there waiting for this ball when it's not like it's literally he ran 20 feet to get there yeah. before the ball's even played almost. So, like but these are, yeah, this is the type of thing that we're trying to, you know, as a coach – this ability to read the game is like and asking questions of like how what type of like is it what type of coaching helps players like expedite the process to be able to read the game better earlier rather than just needing like five ten years to read the game a certain way you can kind of compare it to nba basketball you see college basketball how everything looks frantic and then you watch Kawhi leonard play and it's like every move is calculated and it's like he's like a, almost like a, he's like a robot processing like hand goes here to block this angle. He's not just waving about like crazy. For sure. So, and like the college game too, like the players who control the ball. That's how I kind of like Marv when I would make small plays as an opposite read a, read a ball and put ourselves in position to transition back. Him as a coach would notice this, and, and even though it's like a thing that doesn't show up on the stat sheet. And people like the normal fans may not realize it, but it's like that helped us win the point. Marv was huge on that. And then he would encourage the leaders of the team to point out like small plays that other guys make. So, you know, and it kind of does the coach like to empower the players and it's easier, you know, as players. And for me moving forward in my career, I learned so much from that with Marv as a teammate. And, you know, Matt, for you as a teammate, it's so much easier for you to like talk to your like teammates in, in Turkey, like on the court and work out how you want to play the game than a, than a coach on the sideline. Yeah. And like, uh, yeah, a lot of what you said is really valuable, but I think like the most valuable thing too, is when coaches Marv's smart though, he empowers those that deserve to be empowered. Yes. Right? Like he doesn't just say like to the second Libro or whatever, like, Hey, 
you know, say whatever you want. It's like, hey, Winder, like, you got the reins. Like, you can say what you need to say. Hey, Paul, Sean Rooney, like, guys that have earned that right to be able to be vocal leaders, he, like, allows them to be vocal leaders. And if you say something wrong, he'll let you know later. But he won't – I mean, Mm -hmm. he's not going to call you out in practice or anything. But for sure, like, if if you know what you're doing at any level, I think you should be allowed – and you should be, like – you shouldn't just be allowed, but you should be willing to share that knowledge to help mm-hmm. everybody else or everybody else around you, like understand yeah. and understand why they should be doing that. Not just saying like and praising them, but understand like this is why we need this to happen, and you made mm-hmm. that happen as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm for me now as a coach. I find, I'm finding it almost more challenging. Like as a player, you're you're in the huddle always. Yeah. So you can make the comments, talk about stuff, and like kind of encourage the way you want the game to be played as like a veteran player on a team. But as a coach, you have the timeouts to talk. You can kind of go to the sideline to say certain things. In training, you can kind of like insert yourself a little bit more. But it is yeah. Like if you have a player that like if you as a coach can empower a player to kind of do that for you. It is just another assistant coach on the team. For sure. And I've noticed that in Europe immediately, if you're a setter in Europe, you're a quarterback in the NFL immediately. They're like, you are our assistant on the court. There is no doubt. You're our brain. You're our leader. Go. And in the U S it's not so much like that. And I don't know if you can attest to this, but, in the U.S., it always feels like if you're the best player, you have the most say. And it didn't matter, like, what position you were. And I'm not saying the setter is always has to be, like, your fearless leader or anything. There are other guys that can obviously step into that position. But I always thought, like, it was easier for me to acclimate when I got to Europe, in all honesty, because it was just like, this is your job. This is part of who you need to be. Whereas in the U.S., that's not so like uh, blatantly obvious. And like, you're like constantly battling like, all right, who's the best? Like, Oh, can I say this today? Can I do this today or whatever? It's just something that I know. Do you think it's like going back to like statistics and I think in, in Europe, they almost don't go enough on how like, you know, in after a game to concentrate on certain statistics, but too much in America. It's like, this guy's got the most kills. Like, yeah. like, let's push them, like, have them the headline always. And, the, and as a setter, it's, even though setter is, like, running the offense and the most important guy to run a good offense, like, if you want to have, a, like, an actual spread offense. Sure. So yeah, I don't I, know if that pl- plays into it. I don't know. I always thought of it like a probably i mean that makes sense like going back to what you said about how statistics are run anyways but like you know what are great games are when like two teams are siding out at like 90 percent, and both setters are just killing each other and you're like man this is it's like two great pitchers just going at it and they're both throwing no hitters and you're like who's gonna touch the ball first tonight you know and like when you watch a game and it's just a side out battle to 23-23 and then somebody gets an ace and then they just turn one and then boom that's the set I'm like that's volleyball that should be our gold standard of volleyball now does anybody Mm want to watch that 
absolutely not. That's not fun at all to watch for like the normal viewer. But for me, I'm like, that should be our gold standard. Like, how great is that? Everybody's eating. Everybody's part of the feast. The middles are eating. The bit's going smooth. Opposites in it. They're digging balls. The, mm -hmm. like, the outsides are in it. Everybody's eating. And it's like such a beautiful thing to watch instead of just one guy teeing off. Like watching Korean volleyball where it's like, let's set Kyle Russell every it ball. Sucks. I'm like, this sucks, man. <laughs> it's cool to watch you crush people. But, yeah, but it's just, like, this is so boring. Yeah, for sure. Any Anytime a center gets quick and bit going, it's so much more exciting. Oh, it's amazing. And, and then and, and in rallies in general. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's obviously people, some fans of women's volleyball will hate on men's volleyball because the rallies are shorter. Yes. And then men's volleyball will hate on women's volleyball like because they don't hit the ball hard, so that's why they can do it. <laughs> One, so, and then, yeah, I think that's, that's yeah, it reminds me of a game we played. So for the Australian team last year, we played against Serbia and Italy in the qualification tournament yeah. in Italy. And the fifth set, like just talking about side out battle, we sided out at 90% in the fifth set and lost. Because they sided out at 100%. Yeah, I watched that game. I was like, man, this is great. This is great volleyball. Yeah. It was intense and we were in Bari in the summer and it was just like, everyone is just piss and sweat. Um, <laughs> Zaitsev was a hack that game. And it was before the game, the guy sweats like no, like no one else. And before the game, they're wearing these like white, I don't know why they chose their white uniforms. It was awful because they're just like all dripping sweat. Zaitsev was like, <laughs> they had to have two towel guys follow him around the court. Oh he was just like leaking water and I, I feel like he changed his shoes three times and it was just he he couldn't play volleyball because it was just like he was just a puddle know, sweating sweating too much <laughs> but then what pissed us off is that he got taken out and the nelly yeah. the, the second opposite came in and like went like eight from nine against us in the in, the, in sets four and five uh, yeah, and then that was my against Serbia. Like before, that was my last like competitive volleyball match I ever played. And uh, it was when I watch rewatch that game, it's painful for me to watch because I am like literally on one leg. My, my knee was so bad that I couldn't land on like this my right leg at all. So I'd jump, get I'd be, and sometimes I would jump and my leg just wouldn't work at all. So it's about, you know, talking about finding solutions. I jump, realize like, oh shit, I'm not, I'm not high enough to actually attack this ball. So I'd have to just like, you know, and that volleyball nowadays is so much, so many throw tips. Yeah. So I'd be like, all right, cool. Like this time I'm going to jump and literally just like spatch it into the block and get like a tool them that way. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, I'm like kind of surprised I made, made through the whole four sets. But it's just painful to watch. And that was kind of like, I, at that point, I knew that I could not play volleyball anymore. My knee was just too far gone. Is that the only reason you decided to hang it up? Yes. So I, I actually, so I had an, an offer in Qatar. Or I don't know, I actually signed a contract in Qatar already. And then I talked to David actually just before, like July last year. And David called me up and we just chatted about 
like Pepperdine and he knew that I was, I'd played in, like, in Russia the year before, had a good season, but like um, my knee over the last like four years was just deteriorating. I, it was just worse and worse. I'd get MRIs and the doctor was just like, to be honest, there's nothing, there's no surgery that we can do. So it was getting, and when I got to a certain point in Russia, I could play the whole season, um, but it was just real painful. And I couldn't, I was still, I think I was like the seventh top scorer in the Russian league. And it was interesting because I, I didn't have the same physicality. I couldn't jump properly with my knee. And I'm playing against these massive Russian blocks. So I feel like in every match, I'd score like five or six balls just by, you know, the different types of tips. You know, you, and like nowadays they're allowing too many. I think it was like 2016 was the year where men's volleyball got real throw tippy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, 2015. Once Ingepet became big, France changed the game. Yeah. Like Tilly would do it some throw tips, and then, but then I think Daru was big on it from Daru, Belgium and Zaxa. Yeah, yeah. Club knows huge on them. Yeah. So then I, so I was just like, and at the beginning, it's like these are these are carries, like it should be called, but when it wasn't, it's like, all right, if you can't beat them, join them. So <laughs> and then everyone just started throw tipping everything, and I got to the point where it's just like, all right, I'm gonna grab the ball, put it into the block, and just throw it off. Yeah. I watched one of Matt's matches the other day with one of my players just to, yeah. like, see what differences they saw. And that's the first thing they said. They were like, they, like, I don't know what you call it, but they, like, fast tip it. I'm like, yeah, they pretty much throw it, don't they? She's like, yeah. She said some other stuff, but that was definitely the big thing she took away. Mm -hmm. And it's – in the women's game, it's not as much. Like, David, David Hunt tells Jordan all the time, like, Jordan, you need to start throw tipping more. <laughs> Dude, and you, know got, like, you know who got Dave Hunt on the throw tip? Who? I did. I've been trying oh, to yeah? – Yeah, because he's like, no, that's, that's shit. That's not real volleyball. Like, nobody wants to tip. Uh, three years I've been trying to get him on this throw tip game. And now he's like, the throw tip. That's what it's all about. <laughs> you like that? I, I, I told – does he recognize that you're the one who's told him? 100% no. I don't think – I think it for sure comes only – if it if David says it, David created it. All right. Or Mark. I – yeah, I've been an assistant – I'm, like, kind of cool with that. But <laughs> it, there, there has been a time or two where it's like, I did suggest that, like, a month ago. <laughs> See? And, and it, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all because it's like, as long as – you know, it's just about, you know, being an assistant. It's about – not agreeing with everything, like having certain ideas, having discussions, and then being on the same page with the players. Yeah. Um, but if you do have, like, you know, just working out different ways to play the game. Uh, I think coming back is when I came back, um, this was like in September last year and started with Pepperdine, I immediately was just like, hey, we need to set high balls more on the net. And we tried it, but in college game, it's not, it's not as successful. Because, no, because there's no net play. Kids don't, know well, how, the, kids don't understand net play nearly as much as the international game. What's the body control? Like, there's not the same body control. And I don't, like, it takes years to identify, like, you know, how to get, like, you know, if you ID a high ball set on the net, like, how am I going to get there with perfect balance 
where I can like play it back to myself yeah. and do it or play it in and down if there's no resistance, in and out and have all these different options. But it takes a, a while because, I don't know, it takes a while. And when you have these kids are physical and they can jump and hit. So it's like, all right, when you break down the numbers for the college game, actually setting it like five feet off, the numbers are still better. Maybe if you have a guy that has that ability, and but the but the throw tip is super important when you're running a f- super fast offense. Oh yeah, for sure. It makes people. Cr- it's just another tool in your arsenal that would make blockers nuts. Mm-hmm. And if you if you don't have solutions when you're running a crazy fast offense, like different solutions other than attacking, then you aren't going to be hitting at a high clip. You're going to be making way too many errors. And you know the ability of a guy. I think Vitell Heinen would actually teach these guys this. In well, he's in. Perugia now, but when he was in Freetown, both of their outsides, this is the first I've seen players do this a lot. They would come and let the ball pass their hitting window in their right side and just put it straight down with the left. And they would train this and both do it, like both their outsides, they had these two smaller guys, Sossenheimer and Protop Southwest. God, that guy's a monster. (laughs) And he's six foot and he's he's got all the solutions. And, uh, but if you can have a guy like you need in college, if you want a super fast offense, if you got your outsides with this ability to, cause you want to be able to push the tempo as a setter and it's not always going to be in the hitting window. No. So it's like, all right, when, it, when it's here, what do we do with it? Yeah, for sure. So I mean, oh. who was, I was talking, I was talking to Rooney about this. And I think Quantanetta had just come on to the Italian national team. We were at camp or something. And he was like, Quantanetta is pretty good for a guy that can't jump and only hits angle. And I was like, I had never really thought of that. And, but the thing that he failed to mention is, like, he hits every part of the angle that you could ever imagine. Yes. Like anywhere from, like, 1-6 to, like, the net, he's got it. So, yeah, he might hit angle, but he hits – God, that boy, man, that man's got some range. That's for sure. Well, if you're running a fast and it's one on one, and when you do, if you want to block his, <laughs> if you want to block his angle, he can just, he can hit back door. He, yeah, that guy, he's he's good. <laughs> talk about talk about repeatability. Yeah, like his and over a long period, like his just how consistent his serve. I remember when he first came in with Trento yeah. before he started playing Italian national team. Him and Kaczynski were just like they were. They, they were. That was when Trento won Champions League multiple times, times in a row. Yeah. Him and Kaczynski just like, but his serve. He was. Well, now I remember I said it. He or his obviously Leon is also um, Cuban, but he was the best server ever. Like Juan was before Leon came, just because like in the Italian league he had like a hundred and something aces with like. You know, if you have 100 aces and 200 errors, it's pretty good. He had 100-something aces with 50 errors. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like his serve is not the same anymore. He doesn't have that, the same, same power, but it was unbelievable to watch. And then now Leon comes, and I don't know if what your, your guys' opinion is, but for me, Leon is the best server ever. Like, no question. Oh, no, yeah. For sure. I think he might go down as the best professional player ever by the end of his career. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. He playing against him and Kazan 
and talking to Matt about like them in Kazan, it's just like every single match, like almost every set, like every match, he, okay, this is what he said, every match Leon would win one of the sets by himself with his serve. It'd be 2020, he'd go back there, rip three serves and then it breaks it open. Every single match he would do this. And it's crazy, like that Kazan team, it's crazy to think that Matt was a distant third option. <laughs> <laughs> you like, you look at the distribution, it's like, and Matt was the passing outside for that team. Yeah. <laughs> like you look at the distribution, you got like Leon with like 40 attempts, Mikhailov with 30 and Matt with 15 attempts. And he's always hitting like, like nine from 15 or something, but he just wasn't the guy. And like, it's pretty, because yeah, I'm like, it's pretty impre- like, impressive that you obviously you have the cash, but yeah, it must be weird for Matt to be like, all right, go back with the US team and I'm now number one option again. Who was it? I was with, I was with Matt and Micah the week after Matt beat them in like Champions League in the USA gym. And Matt walks in and he sees Micah and he's like, hey, Micah, like, good to see you, man. And just started giving him shit. And Micah's like, shut the hell up. Like, you had three points in five sets. He's like, you better be thanking your boy Leon. And he's like, I thank him for the last four championships. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a nice spot. Like, it was, for, him, for him, always like, Russia's a tough place to live. But Kazan definitely treats those guys well. What was your and favorite Ingram- place? What was your favorite place to play? Berlin, by far? Oh, by far. Because I, I played in Berlin for seven seasons. Yeah. Well, I mean, I heard uh, Kyle Russell was like, he's golden boy. Oh, yeah. My, like, I could do anything. Because, <laughs> like, that's the thing, though. So, I came from, I played in Italy my first year out of Pepperdine. Then I played in, in Munich for Unterhaching. And we won the cup. And I, like, went when all world in the cup and that's when like Berlin saw me and like offered me a contract. And then but Berlin hadn't won any championships for nine years. Like Friedrichshafen had literally won nine years straight. So when we won and then we won again and again, we won back to back to back. And then we should have won in 2015. We were like, got, that was when we were on Champions League bronze medalists. And I, um, I, had knee surgery, I had screwed my had a knee injury after game three of the finals against Friedrichshafen. So we're up 2-1. And then we were going home for the fourth game. And then I injured my knee like before that fourth game. And then we lost that fourth game in five sets. Then we lost the fifth match in Friedrichshafen in five. And because of that too, that gave me actually some more leverage negotiating was like, all right, like we won three championships and then I get injured and we don't after up two one. And I like, I, and the president, I, I keep kind of subtly reminding him about that. So that helped for, for future negotiations. And, but then later on, I'm like, cause we had won so much. It was me and the president could have like, I could be brutally honest with him about like anything. And he like, and if he tried to like, I don't know. He's a guy that always liked to be in the spotlight. I don't know if you watch Berlin games, you, he'll stand behind the scorer's table and be like the center of attention. 
And it's real hard. Like German players historically never played well for Berlin because he would stand there and just like berate them. And Kavika like came into Berlin and he would stand like parallel to the net and Kavika would set. And during the game, he'd be yelling to Kavika, like that set needs to be here. <laughs> and as a player, you're the president like yelling at you. And he's like, I don't know, you talked about like this setting location or whatever and confidence. Like it's tough when the president's yelling at you after every freaking point about like this set should be here, this set should be here. Blaming you for like not having the, your players not kill the ball. Yeah, that's pretty tough and, to live with. Yeah, so Ben Kavika was like a baller for four years there and like Kavika and the president. But then when talking about to Carl Russell and me being the golden boy, I, my, I had some injuries here and there and like the medical, um, like the medical healthcare system is like amazing in Germany. So they took care of me. And when I had like a bum back, it did not matter like if I was playing or not. It's always like, yep, Paul is the best, like no matter what. It's tough for Kyle to come in. <laughs> Kyle's like, oh shit, like he can do anything. And I'm like, and sometimes when I literally like had a bad game, and the president still like does not care because I've won six championships. <laughs> like, and I'm like, oh, it's a pretty nice place to be. Like, why did you leave? Well, I. So what happened? Oh, basically, like, I that was when my body was. So we won in 2018. Well, and uh, then I just wanted like, we had Mike so. My wife, we had two kids born in Berlin and uh, it was the contract I was on in Berlin was solid. But then I had an offer from Russia for like double the money. And then I was like, all right, right, let's, and I'm like, and Russia was awesome. This is obviously a whole nother story, but Russia will, if I'm like, I'm just a little bummed that I wasn't in Russia during my prime because my knee it's, I was like able to deal with it, but it was just disappointing that I wasn't as physical as I once, once was. And it was really cool experience, the Russian people and all the shit that went on. This is, I got some different Russian stories, but maybe leave that for another day. It's a super incredibly interesting place. Yeah. And like my, my wife and kids came over, they were there for three months and uh, minus 40 degree weather trying to deal with like getting when we didn't have a car so getting ubers around everywhere with two kids like like cramming into this old ass like like random whatever they had these vehicles from china from whatever it was it was some sketchy times but like very really interesting times but that basically i left for a bigger and just a different type of thing like with berlin it was like seven years and it got to that point where it's like all right let's go a different direction and because, yeah, I don't know. I will always, I'm, I will still message like the guy, like the cafe, the president every now and then talking about like coming back. And it's kind of cool. They're doing a hall of fame, like thing where they have six players that are going to go into their hall of fame and they're going to like raise banners up for them. So I'm going to go back probably whenever COVID ends and life's back to normal, go back there to kind of be at a home game and get honored for the Hall of Fame, so that'll be pretty cool. Sick. That's Berlin awesome. Hall of Famer. Yeah. So, guys, I actually got to go.
um, head and eat my kids at a playground. <laughs> so I don't know if, how you want to, how you guys usually end stuff, but, and I feel like I've already talked a lot. Sometimes I just feel like, oh, I've kind of like, I've been talking for the last five minutes straight. <laughs> you did great. That I think we're good here. All right. I think right, when are you when are you guys getting Marv on? I wanted to do episode fifty to commemorate Pepperdine's fifty years. Okay. What are you guys on now? Twenty five. You're number twenty five. All right. I I think you need to get him on earlier. You think so? Because <laughs> okay. hey, why not? Here's the thing. Get him on now and at fifty. Oh, I like that. We get a double like whammy it. with Marv. I like the way you think, Paul. Yeah, and with Marv, too, it's like, why not set, like, spread that out? Marv's the guy. Like, right now with social media on Pet Man VB, yeah. I don't know if you guys look at it. It's like, it's Marv every week. him up right now. <laughs> and, like, David's like, yeah, we've got to push Marv because, like, that's what people want to see. <laughs> and he's not wrong. So, and you, and you know where Marv is from Monday to Friday every week. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. And, and he's a Zoom guy, too. You'll get, get him on there. I heard he's texting now. He is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's awesome. You can get in contact with him anytime. We actually, we have the Pepperdine Men's Golf Tournament. So, yeah, Pepperdine Men's Volleyball Golf Tournament on tomorrow morning. So we were actually just at Los Robles setting everything up, getting all the prize. We have 20, we have like... A